Welcome to Brilliant Minds of the Animal Kingdom. My name is Emiliano Rupra. I'm a Mexican-American explorer, adventure filmmaker, and writer. Over the years, I've covered everything from war and conflict to vanishing cultural traditions and conservation efforts. I've also spent a lot of time with wild animals. I've filmed dozens of species in far-off habitats and in captivity. The more I learned about their incredible lives, the more questions I had about them and about us as humans. So I decided to ask the writers and scientists who study animal behavior. In this series, you'll learn everything from how dung beetles navigate by the light of the Milky Way to why bonobos have so much sex. I hope you'll learn something new. I certainly did. An eastern gray whale set a record in 2015 for the longest recorded migration by a mammal, a journey of nearly 14,000 miles. It started in Russian waters and went all the way to Mexico and back. Every year, monarch butterflies take four generations on a 6,000-mile journey. Starting in central Mexico and California, the first generation fly to Texas and Oklahoma where they lay eggs and die. The next generation takes off further north before doing the same. The third generation reaches America's Great Lakes and succumbs before the fourth generation flies all the way back south, up to 3,000 miles, to lay its eggs and start the cycle again. The Alaskan bar-tailed godwit holds the record for the longest non-stop journey through the air. Its annual migration is approximately 15,500 miles but its journey between Alaska and New Zealand, a journey of 7,000 miles, is done without food or rest in an unbelievable eight days. Some animals make dangerous journeys every day to look for food or water, or find materials for their nests. Others make epic journeys crossing oceans and continents to find a mate or escape the looming winter. All of these nomads, migrants, and globetrotters have one thing in common. They know how to get to their final destination, and they know how to get back. Most of these are journeys the average person would find impossible without GPS. In fact, many of the world's best sailors throughout history have been less successful in navigating the world than dozens of these amazing species. But how do they do this? Do animals map out their environments? Or is it all instinct? Do they use the sun, moon, and stars like human sailors of old? Do their superior sense of smell or sight play a part? Or are they in tune with some secret or invisible language of the earth that modern humans are disconnected from? In this episode of Brilliant Minds of the Animal Kingdom, we'll discuss these mysteries with David Barry, author of Super Navigators, exploring the wonders of how animals find their way. Hi, David. Thank you so much for taking the time. Great pleasure. Yeah, so I wanted to start uh, with a little bit about you. Animal navigation is such a specific area of animal cognition studies. You've been a diplomat, a sailor, and a writer. So what drove you to focus specifically on animals in your latest book? Well, I think, you know, it goes probably right back to my student days when I studied experimental psychology, and and that involved quite a lot of animal behavior. And I vividly remember learning about the astonishing work of uh, the Austrian scientist Carl von Frisch, who in the early part of the 20th century uh, discovered that honeybees were extremely good navigators, um, but also had this astonishing 
dance language whereby they could communicate to their hive mates not only the existence of good sources of nectar, but also the course and distance they should follow to find them. And when this was first revealed uh, by von Frisch and his colleagues, most scientists dismissed it. They thought it was absurd. It couldn't possibly be true that an animal as simple as a bee with a tiny little brain could be engaged in behavior as complex as he described. But he turned out to be right. And I, I kept this at the back of my mind. And I think, uh, you know, after a long career doing all sorts of other things, uh, when I finally had some time and I, I was writing the, the book Sextant, I, I came back to this. I remember I was writing about how uh, the Pacific Island navigators make use of birds. Very often they will find their way to a small low-lying island by watching the behaviour of land birds at evening. Because what happens out on the open ocean, you see a bird that doesn't live on the water but needs to land at night. You watch what these birds do as the sun sets and these birds will head off like an arrow for the nearest bit of land. And the, the Pacific Island navigators understood that very well. So the moment they saw a land bird heading off in a particular direction at sunset, they knew land lay in that direction. So obviously these birds were very good navigators. And I think I, as I wrote Sexton, I thought, wouldn't it be fun to look more deeply into the science of animal navigation? Uh, and indeed, this is what I did. And the book Super Navigators um, is what emerged from that process after I don't know, four years of research and meeting dozens of scientists and traveling around the world. Uh, it's been an absolutely amazing adventure finding out all about it. So let's talk a bit about navigation as a discipline. It's pretty complicated. Most people use GPS to get around, but if they were to try a long distance journey without one, they would be quite lost. In fact, it took thousands of years for humans to get to this point through the use of technology and observation. What are some of the challenges involved in navigation? Oh, that's an easy question to answer. <laughs> uh, well, a lot, of, a lot of navigational principles are, in a sense, the application of common sense. I mean, so, I mean, a lot of navigation is about the use of landmarks. So you recognize where you are by reference to familiar features in the landscape. Uh, obviously, that doesn't work so well on the open sea. But, but if you're uh, navigating by land or along the coast, uh, landmarks are going to be very important. Uh, you may also want to use the system that is known as, at least amongst uh, human navigators, it's known as dead reckoning, which is the business of tracking how far you have gone on a particular course uh, and therefore knowing where you are at the end of a, a certain period of time. And you can continue to engage in dead reckoning, uh, even over quite a long period of time and lots and lots of different course changes. You just have to, to uh, plot out the different vectors on a chart to know roughly where you are. And dead reckoning, it turns out, is something that a lot of animals, non-human animals, also use. Uh, we might come back to that. But celestial navigation uh, is also 
critically important, or used to be. Uh, and there are simple aspects of celestial navigation. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere uh, and you know which star is Polaris, the North Star, then Polaris, because it stands vertically above the northern geographical pole of the Earth, Polaris tells you where due north is. And if you measure the height of Polaris above the, the northern horizon, the height, by a wonderful quirk of geometry, matches almost exactly your latitude. So just looking at a single star, Polaris, can tell you a great deal. Um, the sun is also very, very useful because the sun rises obviously each day in the east and it sets in the west. But when it gets to its highest point in the sky, uh, whether it's to the north of you or to the south of you, uh, it will be due north or due south. So that's very useful too. And a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, indigenous peoples still use these principles to help them navigate uh, on the open ocean. Pacific Islanders, for example. Uh, it was later, of course, I mean, with the help of, of uh, astronomers and mathematicians, it was possible to elaborate the whole system of celestial navigation so that you could use instruments like the sextant uh, to actually fix your position on the open ocean. And to do that, you needed to know two things. You needed to know your latitude and also your longitude, how far east or west you'd traveled. And to describe that in words, how that works, is a bit more complicated, though I'll have a bash if you want me to. <laughs> no, that's perfect. What is clear is that navigating the planet, you know, is easier said than done. There are so many factors to account for, and these, of course, become exponentially more difficult to get right the longer the distance is traveled. What's most surprising, perhaps, is that we're not by any means the only species on the planet that succeeds in making long journeys across the globe. You cover so many fascinating nomads, migrants, and travelers in the animal kingdom. Some of the species you talk about are crocodiles, green turtles, humpback whales, and pigeons, among so many others. But you also mention a series of insects, like the desert ant or dung beetles who navigate by the light of the Milky Way, or moths that fly over a thousand kilometers in the dark to exact locations across Australia. I spent some months filming monarch butterflies, who you also mention and who carry out perhaps the longest insect migration on the planet. But aren't insects' brains too small to consciously carry out these feats? And does this level of complexity in their achievements force us to reconsider the place that insects have on our hierarchy of animal intelligence? Such interesting questions, Emiliano. Uh, well, first of all, I think the everybody, including the scientists, has been amazed, amazed by what insects can do. I mean, you, you mentioned one particular insect, which is the, the desert ant. Uh, and this has been the subject of the life work of a, an amazing uh, German scientist called Rüdiger Weiner, whom I interviewed for the book. He spent literally 50 years with his colleagues exploring the navigational toolkit, if you like, of the desert ant. And it is truly stupendous. This is an animal with a brain that consists of about 400,000 neurons. By comparison, the human brain typically has about 85 billion neurons. Yet the desert ant can do some things 
that we humans can't do without the help of instruments. And one of the most remarkable things it can do is to perform dead reckoning. So you've got to imagine a little insect that lives under the ground in a nest, and the nest has a tiny little entrance, which is a small hole, and the surroundings are a flat, featureless, baking hot salt pan in the North African desert. These ants emerge from their nest and their job is to go out and find food. And they will dash around very, very fast and they may cover hundreds of meters zigzagging across the surface. And then maybe if they're lucky, they find a dead butterfly. They pick it up in their jaws. And then what do they do? How do they find their way back to the tiny hole in the salt pan, which is in completely invisible to them at that point? Well, the amazing thing is that they can go more or less straight back to it in a, in a straight line. And it turns out, as a result of Rudiger Vena's research, that these ants are able to track the course they're following constantly over the surface of the desert by reference to the position in the sky of the sun. And they do that not by looking directly at the sun necessarily, but by reading off the polarization patterns that are produced across the whole of the sky. They have a specialized part of their little tiny eyes that is dedicated to the task of picking up these polarization patterns. On top of that, uh, they have a little clock built into them that enables them to compensate for the steady movement of the sun across the sky. If they couldn't do that, of course, uh, their compass would quickly go wrong because the sun would be moving and their course would alter accordingly. But no, they have a, what's known technically as a time-compensated sun compass built into them. Well, having a compass is terrific. and That's impressive. But to do dead reckoning, you need two things. You need to be able to track your course and you need to know how far you've gone. In other words, you need an odometer. Well, astonishingly enough, these desert ants have an odometer and it, it's based on two things. And this is, to my mind, completely staggering. First of all, they can, as it were, count their steps. They aren't literally counting their steps, but they have a, a mechanism that enables them to integrate the distance they've covered based on the movements of their limbs. And this was demonstrated not very many years ago in an extraordinary experiment which involved chopping off, shortening the legs of some ants and lengthening the, lengths, the legs of some other ants using pig bristle and then seeing how their behavior changed under these interventions. And sure enough, it, it proved that the strides that the ants take are very, very important to their ability to measure distance. But it also turns out that they use something else. They use what's called visual flow. In other words, they look at how fast the ground is moving past them as they go along. So they've got two different ways of measuring distance. One is visual and one is uh, proprioceptive. It involves the keeping track of the movement of their limbs. And, and these, these mechanisms are so 
sophisticated that the ants can even make allowance for undulations in the ground. So they don't overestimate or underestimate as a result of changes in the, in the surface. They can even make those uh, compensatory adjustments. This is, there's a great deal more I could tell you, and you can read lots more in the book about, uh, about the navigational systems of the desert ant, but it is quite stupendous that an animal that small can do those things. And you might well say, well, how did that come about? And I think part of the answer is that insects have been around for a very, very long time. We're talking about maybe 300 million years. Uh, human beings, Homo sapiens, people looking like us have only been around for a few hundred thousand years. So these insects have had a very, very long time to get very, very good at what they do. And their little tiny brains, well, they may be small, but they are extremely efficient. And they seem to have uh, a lot of common features. So you look at different insects, they have very similar brains, and many, many of them turn out to have the ability to use celestial cues like the sun or even the moon or the Milky Way to maintain a steady course. Uh, many of them also have uh, odometers of one kind or another, and they use smell and all sorts of other things too. So they're tiny, but they are super evolved and super efficient and truly remarkable animals. Desert ants, it should be said, exist in these homogenous environments, as anybody who's ever been lost in the desert knows, which makes their precision that much more surprising. I often think of birds when I think of epic journeys across the earth. And you give several examples, but one of my favorites was uh, Clark's Nutcracker. Can you tell us about this bird? Well, Clark's Nutcracker is a, is a member of the crow family. And, and we now know that crows are amongst the most intelligent uh, of birds, if not among the most intelligent of non-human animals. And Clark's Nutcracker has, a, has an interesting challenge. It lives uh, in the Rocky Mountains, um, and it has to survive very, very bleak, cold winters when there is no food available. So what it does is it collects nuts and other seeds uh, during the summer months and stashes them. Uh, in small numbers, maybe just a half a dozen seeds or nuts uh, in different locations. And these locations uh, may be spread over a hundred square miles of country. Uh, and the extraordinary thing is that these birds, having hidden these nuts in perhaps several thousand different locations, are able successfully to recover them during the winter months when they desperately need to find them. And the experiments that have been conducted indicate that they rely primarily on uh, landmark information. They actually remember where they've hidden the nuts by, as it were, making a mental note of the characteristic features surrounding each of these caches. And, and it looks as if there are two levels to this. There's a kind of very local level, so they will learn precisely what bushes and rocks surround a particular cache. But obviously in the winter, some of those local details may be hidden by snow or may have been altered by something. So they also take account 
of much larger landscape features. And it looks as if they may be memorizing kind of panoramic features that enable them to locate the general locality before they home in on the specific cache. This is a subject of continuing research, but what is clear is that these are really prodigiously good uh, birds at remembering thousands and thousands of separate locations uh, using uh, landscape features. It's a, it's a very, very impressive feat. I wanted to go back to the Polynesians for a second. Uh, Polynesians are interesting because they didn't use traditional tools. They used memory and skill. The knowledge of the currents, the stars, and the winds was passed down orally, almost like a secret language from generation to generation. It was not based on some kind of instruction manual or a set of technologies. I wonder if this is a closer parallel to what lots of these species are doing, you know, using all the skills at their disposal and in some way teaching the next generation these same skills. What are some of the tools that animals use to navigate? Well, I, I, the short answer is that they use every available uh, sensory modality. So depending on the animal you're talking about, some will have senses that we can easily recognize, like sight, sound, and, and smell. Some will have senses that are quite strange to us. So for example, a lot of animals, it turns out, have a magnetic sense, which human beings may possibly have, but, uh, but certainly there's very little evidence, if we do have it, that we can make much use of it. Um, so for example, Many uh, amphibians, insects, uh, birds, reptiles like uh, sea turtles uh, have a magnetic sense. And one of the great uh, mysteries that is being uh, actively researched by a lot of uh, scientists right now is how do animals actually detect the Earth's magnetic field? Which parameters, which aspects of the Earth's magnetic field are they making use of? Uh, and how do they... Uh, as it were, turn that sensory input into information about the direction in which they want to travel. Um, it's, it's a really, really fascinating subject. And I have to say, one of the hardest things I had to deal with was trying to get my head around uh, the, one of the theories, which is the, the so-called radical pair theory, which essentially involves uh, quantum level effects uh, that may uh, take place in the retina of uh, the eyes of, for example, migratory birds. It's a fascinating subject, and you can read all about it in Super Navigators. It's hard to describe briefly. So you cover not only terrestrial creatures, but you provide some very surprising examples of marine creatures as well. Uh, among them, perhaps a group we ascribe very little intelligence to is fish. Yet one of the most surprising and skillful navigators you mention is salmon. Yes. Yes, well, salmon are extraordinary, and uh, research on the uh, behaviour of salmon really comes under two headings. The first discovery uh, was made by a, a, an American scientist called Arthur, Arthur Hasler and his colleagues quite some years ago, and that was that salmon have a very, very acute sense of smell or taste, which enables them to detect the very particular signature of the streams in which they were hatched. And 
by following that, if you like, scent trail, they can find their way back upriver to the places where they were, so to speak, born. Um, so that works perfectly well when they found their way back into the river. The second question is, how do they find their way from the open ocean, where they go to fatten themselves up before they return and breed, how do they find their way from right out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean to the mouth of a river in Washington State or British Columbia or Alaska? How do they find the estuary mouth from literally thousands of miles away? And what now seems to be pretty well established is that they are using the Earth's magnetic field in some fashion to achieve this feat. And there are some fascinating experiments uh, that have been conducted by uh, a scientist called Nathan Putnam, um, which shed light on this. And again, are described uh, in, in a bit more detail in Supernavigators. Uh, th these experiments are similar to those that uh, have been conducted on marine turtles, because marine turtles also navigate vast expanses of ocean, uh, apparently with the help of the Earth's magnetic field. These experiments with uh, the uh, homing of salmon uh, are very, very similar to the ones that have been conducted uh, in relation to marine turtles. Marine turtles also have the capacity to navigate across vast expanses of ocean and find their way back to the beaches where they were born. Um, and they too are, are using the Earth's magnetic field, it seems, for that purpose. You know, I've filmed several sea turtle migrations or arribadas over the years. In one particular case, I, I was talking with a local who had grown up in this village in the coast of Oaxaca in Mexico, and he was maybe 80 years old. Uh, and he told me that the turtles didn't always come to this beach. Uh, that actually began in the 50s. And this got me thinking because I always just assumed this was the beach that turtles had been coming to forever and it was almost automatic. But it would seem that this was almost a choice. You know, maybe the conditions became such that they favored this beach over a previous one. Which begs the question, is navigation purely instinct or is it based on conscious choices the animals are making? That's, that's a fascinating story. I, I, I spent a couple of weeks, funnily enough, waiting for an arrivada on the Pacific coast of Costa Rica with the man who is, I suppose, the, the great guru of turtle navigation, Ken Lohman. And uh, though we failed to see an arrivada, we saw Olive Ridley's. Um, and I, I'd, I'd love to ask him what he thinks. Uh, but, but the the deeper question you're asking here is, is about the what level of sentience, what level of consciousness, if any, we attribute to these remarkable animal navigators. And I, I think it's a, it's a very profound question and one that I don't think we can easily answer on the basis of the scientific information we have available to us. And in a sense, it's a partly philosophical question too. Uh, but one thing I would say uh, is that when I was a student, we were just getting to the point where evidence was emerging that demolished 
the very anthropocentric notion that human beings were the only animals that could use tools. Human beings were the only animals that had any kind of language. Uh, these notions were already under threat. Um, and in the intervening years, uh, more and more evidence has emerged of the extraordinary variety of skills uh, and different kinds of intelligence that are displayed by animals of, of so many different kinds. I mean, octopus, uh, members of the crow family, birds, parrots, uh, cetaceans like dolphins, not to mention, obviously, apes. And as we've been discussing, what about insects? I mean, some of these behaviours uh, that are discussed in, in my book, Supernavigators, are truly stupendous. And I don't think it's good enough just to say, oh, well, it's entirely automatic and instinctual. Uh, I'm not even quite sure what that means, because quite a lot of human behaviours are probably quite similar. Quite a lot of the things that we do, we do automatically and without thinking. Uh, I think I'm quite attracted to the idea that there may be a sort of gradualist scale that uh, that consciousness, if you like, um, a difficult term to define in itself, but, but maybe what we think of as, as consciousness in a human context, maybe it does extend to other animal groups. Maybe it's a quality that gradually emerges as you move up the up the kind of evolutionary ladder. Um, I would be very reluctant to, to rule out the notion that other animals, even quite apparently simple ones, engage in, if you like, thought processes. One thing that I came across again and again in my studies for this, for this book was animals that had extensive toolkits, if you like, that could use all sorts of different ways to find their way around. And sometimes it's clear that they are able to make decisions about which particular tool they're going to use at a given time. And it looks as if perhaps they're doing that on the basis of some kind of judgment about which particular source of information is going to be most reliable at a given juncture in a journey. And that, of course, is is a very characteristic feature of what human navigators have to do. I mean, human navigators, in the old days at least, used to have to look at the information they were getting from their sextant readings, used to have to look at their dead reckoning and, and so on and so forth, and they would, they would have to make judgments about which was most likely to be true. So I'm very open-minded, and it seems to me that it would be foolish to dismiss the notion that other animals certainly animals as complex as birds um, and mammals um, are engaged in similar thought processes to our own. So there are lots of different versions of and definitions of maps. Is there evidence animals are using maps? It's a really good question. And I, I have to say I struggled with this in the writing of the book because the book is 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 sort of divided into two parts, non-map-based navigation and possibly map-based navigation. I think it's clear from the work of the neuroscientists that quite a lot of mammals, like rats and mice, and indeed human beings, have 
uh, circuits in their brains, uh, notably based in a region called the hippocampus and surrounding areas like the entorhinal cortex, uh, that appear to provide the basis on which some kind of map-based navigation can take place. And certainly, introspectively, it does seem that we humans quite often uh, engage in a kind of map-based navigation. I mean, you can, you can ask people, these people with a good sense of direction, to point towards something, uh, even when they don't have access to a physical map, and, and they can very often point pretty accurately in the right direction and even tell you how far away something is. is. The difficulty, I think, with the map metaphor is that it's a very blurry metaphor. There are lots and lots of different kinds of maps, some of which uh, are highly metric. I mean, the obvious map one thinks of is, is like a marine chart where you have lines of latitude and longitude and you can plot positions. But of course, a, a cognitive map, a mental map, might not be like that. It might not be metric. It might be, um, it might be more fluid, more imprecise than that. Um, and I, I'm not entirely satisfied that any you know, non-mammal has yet been shown to have what you might really call a map. Though there are certainly plenty of scientists out there who would make that claim. I mean, some people, for example, say that uh, you know, the salmon out in the Pacific have some kind of magnetic map that enables them to find their way home. I, To be honest, I'm not totally convinced by that. I mean, it may be true. Um, there are some people who claim that honeybees have a mental map, but I don't think the evidence um, is very compelling. And I think there are alternative and, and simpler explanations that don't require one to uh, attribute a map sense to, to bees. Certainly the, the desert ant can do all the things it does, impressive as they are, without needing to have a map. Uh, so I think it's a, it's the word map. I think is is a is a little bit dangerous because it's it's a it's a very handy bit of shorthand, and frankly, it makes a good headline. Um, so it tends, I think, to be used a little bit too freely in the field of animal navigation research. There are so many parallels between human navigation and animal navigation, but it's hard to understand how animals see the world, which makes, of course, studying them quite difficult. So many great feats of animal journeys remain a mystery. In fact, you dedicate a page of every chapter to some of those mysteries. You mentioned, for example, the Antarctic fur seals, especially the females. Uh, they return with extraordinary precision to the place of their birth, usually within 12 meters sometimes within three meters or less. Another example you cite is how bluefin tuna perform these really deep dives around dusk and dawn, uh, potentially to calibrate some kind of internal magnetic compass by sampling polarized patterns in the twilight sky. What is an animal navigation mystery you would love to solve? Well, uh, you, of course, I'm a sailor, so I'm, I'm really fascinated by the things that happen on the oceans. And one of the most amazing things is the uh, migration 
of humpback whales. In fact, lots of great whales perform amazing migrations, but there's quite a lot of data about uh, humpback whales. And what we see is that humpback whales typically uh, spend part of the year down around uh, the Antarctic, uh, where they load up on krill and get good and fat. And then in the summer, they head north to warmer equatorial waters where they breed and the females bring forth their calves. Now, the, the extraordinary thing is that they, they swim from the waters of the Antarctic to small island groups in the tropical waters of the Pacific, for example, in almost arrow straight lines. They follow remarkably straight courses for hundreds or even thousands of miles across the open ocean. And that, as any sailor will know, is not easy. Uh, you know, you, there are currents to contend with, there's bad weather. You know, just maintaining a steady course, even if you've got a, a magnetic compass to steer by, is not that easy. And to maintain a straight course when you're contending with uh, the effects of ocean currents uh, without any means of being able to fix your position, that is truly remarkable. So what on earth are these humpback whales doing? How do they do it? Well, the frustrating thing, of course, is that it's very, very hard to conduct uh, research on whales. I mean, partly for ethical reasons and partly because they're big and strong and it's difficult to, to perform the necessary experiments. But I would dearly love to know what remarkable set of sensory uh, abilities and cognitive abilities permit humpback whales to perform these remarkable navigations. And I mean, it could be that they have a magnetic sense. That would be very helpful. It's conceivable that they're celestial navigators. You, may, you know, when they come to the surface, maybe they're making observations of the sun or even the stars. Who knows? Uh, but we really, really don't know. And I, I just think it's a... I love these mysteries, actually. I, I think it's, it's, it's... I'd hate for us to understand it all. And it's not just whales. I mean, there are lots of other remarkable marine creatures. I mean, bluefin tuna these huge, magnificent fish that are now being hunted almost to the edge of extinction. Uh, these huge fish, they perform amazing transoceanic uh, migrations, also with great precision. Uh, how do they do it? There are a few intriguing little hints that suggest that they may be uh, using uh, perhaps uh, the Earth's magnetic field or maybe polarised light uh, beneath the surface of the water, but really we don't know. Uh, and yes, th those, are, those are some of the things that fascinate me. So I've worked with lots of biologists who track migrating species. Whether or not these species are deciding to migrate to one particular area instead of doing it almost habitually is less important than acknowledging that they have no other option if, if they are to survive. The Oyamel trees of Mexico, for example, are the only real refuge for the monarch butterflies who migrate there. If the climate changes slightly, it could render those forests inhabitable to millions of monarchs. And there are many such examples of safe havens for migrant species that are being affected by climate change and human activity. 
How is climate change affecting animal navigation? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, you know, there, there are so many ways in which climate change, uh, if it goes unchecked, could disrupt uh, the migratory behavior of a lot of different animals. I mean, if you look at, uh, at pelagic, uh, uh, you know, animals that live in the open ocean, many of them depend very heavily on these major uh, current systems like the Gulf Stream, for example, in the North Atlantic, these uh, these very powerful currents that that have existed, you know, for heaven knows how long, and which provide a sort of conveyor belt that will carry um, animals for thousands of miles along. Now, if 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 climate change proceeds, one of the things that we are told to expect is the disruption of many of these oceanic current systems, the, the incredibly important processes whereby the salt water from the tropical parts of the ocean changes place with the fresh water coming from the ice at the poles, this thermohaline circulation which drives these currents, that's likely to be disrupted. So that will cause chaos for a lot of marine organisms. Uh, some of the wind systems uh, that are also associated with uh, you know, animal migration. So the monsoon winds, for example, are used by birds and by insects uh, to, to, to travel very large distances. If, if climate change results in the disruption of, of those regular trade winds, as they're called, uh, again, there will be um, there will be very very serious consequences for a lot of organisms. Uh, this is a huge subject, and one could go on um, offering more and more different examples of the effects that climate change will have on the animal kingdom and on uh, animal navigators. Uh, it's a it's it's a very grim prospect and. To be honest, I mean, at the back of my mind always in writing Super Navigators was the hope that in a very small way I might encourage more people to share my sense of wonder at uh, what all our fellow creatures can do and, and the desire to do whatever we can to prevent disastrous changes taking place in the climate and, and so on that will make life harder for them. You know, technology has distanced us from our natural surroundings in so many ways. GPS has given a lot of people the illusion that navigation is this simple feat. We don't really consider the details anymore, perhaps rendering us less intelligent, or at the very least, less detail-oriented. As anyone who's ordered an Uber and finds it across the street very well knows, I think there's a lot of value uh, and rediscovering how amazing an achievement it is through the lives of incredible animals. In a sense, it reconnects us to the planet. No, I think that's absolutely right. And, and one of the things that upsets me is that with the advent of GPS, which is an absolute technological marvel, I mean, I am constantly filled with amazement at the fact that you can, you know, that, that, that this thing has been invented and that it works and that we have it all in our phones and so on. But the, the advent of GPS has, in effect, brought to an end uh, not just centuries of, of navigational history, but millennia. Uh, I mean, suddenly we are now able to plot our position with 
astonishing accuracy anywhere on the face of the planet at the press of a button without so much as lifting our eyes from the little screen that we're looking at. It's amazing. It's fantastically useful. It saves lives and so on. But it has brought about a really profound rupture with our past, with our deep past, because we no longer have to exercise any skills. We no longer have to use our senses. We no longer have to observe our environment. We no longer have to uh, make inferences and deductions based on what we're seeing. Um, and I find that quite disturbing. And I think it is disturbing because it's perhaps the last and most important step that we've taken in kind of automating our lives. We've, we've outsourced gradually over the centuries so many specialist skills. Uh, but until very recently, we've all needed to be able to use our senses and our wits to find our way around. But, but that now is no longer the case. Uh, I mean, one of the things that, that, uh, that really kind of bothers me, maybe I did touch on this, is, is just anthropocentrism, you know, the, the, this ugly human tendency to think that we're the top of the pole, you know, that we're better at everything than, you know, that we're special, we're unique, that the human animal is far above all other animals and that uh, we're superior in every way. And, you know, one of the things that's obvious just from looking at animal navigation is that this is abundantly false. You know, it's just totally not true. Uh, I mean, you know, we can be very good at navigation if we put our minds to it, but most of the time we're not. And we don't have uh, the natural talents of a lot of, uh, of other animals, including very, very small and simple ones, apparently, like, you know, desert ants and bees. So I, I, as you will have noticed, I make a point about this at the end of Super Navigators because it seems to me that actually that, that anthropocentrism is one of the reasons why the world's in the mess it's in. You know, we have simply failed again and again and again to recognise that we are a part of creation. You know, we're not separate from the natural world. We're a part of it and we depend on it. And we need to treat our fellow creatures, both animals and plants, with respect. We need to take steps to preserve the biodiversity on which our own survival actually depends. Thank you, David. It, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Emiliano. That was fun. Bye now. That was David Barry, author of Supernavigators, which you can purchase on Amazon or wherever you get your books and audiobooks. Supernavigators provides countless examples of astounding navigation by animals. We meet some that use a heightened sense of smell, others that navigate based on polarized light or magnetism. There are so many fascinating studies and anecdotes in this book that we weren't able to cover in the interview, so I highly recommend buying the book if you want to know more. One interesting fact he brings up is that more often than not, these species are using a variety of skill sets honed over generations. In fact, the experiments detailed in Barry's book suggest that some of the skills are being imitated by younger generations. In other words, 
These are not necessarily automatic or instinctual habits, but conscious efforts based on individual decision-making. So the next time you see a hummingbird appear when the spring arrives, know that it too is a migrant and applied tremendous effort and skill to make it to your backyard or garden. So be kind. Please join me for the next episode of Brilliant Minds of the Animal Kingdom, where we'll be speaking with one of the world's foremost primatologists, Franz DeWalt, about his seminal work, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? I don't know. I guess we'll see. Until next time.